Hi, I'm Tim Marlowe, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Hello and good evening. Welcome to Royal Academy. My name is Kira Milmo. I'm from the Adult Learning Programme team at the Royal Academy. And we're delighted to welcome you all to tonight's event, an in-conversation between artist Phila DiBarlo um, and art critic Gilda Williams. This event is obviously connected to the exhibition by Phila DiBarlo that is on at the moment in the Gabrielle's Junkler Winkler Galleries. Um, it's on until June, but we strongly recommend, if you have not been already, to go. It's a, a truly stunning exhibition. So Gilda is going to introduce Phila DiBarlo in more detail, so I will just um, introduce Gilda. Gilda is a contemporary art critic, teacher and author of the best-selling art book How to Write About Contemporary Art. She is senior lecturer on the MFA Curating Programme at Goldsmiths College London and is also London correspondent for Art Forum magazine. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Phila DiBarlo and Gilda Williams. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. This beautiful new lecture theater. Um, uh, thank you, of course, to the RA for uh, inviting me uh, to the honor to speak with uh, Philida Barlow, RA, uh, this evening. Uh, yes, and I do hope a lot of you have seen uh, Cool de Sac, the uh, series of three rooms which um, uh, Philida has done a really extraordinary uh, work uh, that sort of takes you through the space, takes you through uh, parts of the Royal Academy that some of you may not have seen before in the refurbishment. Uh, just by way of a quick um, introduction, um, and Philida has been showing since at least the early uh, 1970s, uh, more now, I think, than ever, perhaps, uh, having studied at the Chelsea School of Art, where she uh, taught for a long time, and then at the Slade, where she uh, uh, famously taught for a long time, 1988 to 2009. Uh, her students include Rachel White-Reed, Angela De La Cruz, Tacita Dean, Conrad Shawcross, uh, and apparently Martin Creed said he's and that she's <clears throat> the best teacher who never taught him. Um, but she was very well known, um, and her legacy continues in some extent well, with them. Um, perhaps her, most, her best known early work was a, a piece called Shed Mesh. Uh, and there'll be, a, there, as you see, there's images. We're not gonna actually respond to the images, but you'll see all of the varieties of uh, sculptural making uh, that Philida has been involved in. Uh, and that was at the Camden Arts Centre in 1976. And many of you, I'm sure, have seen uh, Doc at the Duveen Galleries of the Tate in 2014. Uh, she, of course, represented Britain at the Venice Biennale in 2017 uh, and showed here at the Courtyard uh, in 2005. And she's shown all over the world uh, in Munich at the New Museum in New York, the Carnegie International, etc. cetera. Um, so uh, extraordinary career. Um, I think I'd like to start um, with the, the fact that I, I'm always impressed with your work when you walk in 
it's so much, it's not only bigger, bigger than you, bigger than all of us, but you actually wonder how it, it, how it got there. Uh, and I remember you were saying something about how the, the first, um, it's obviously made of a lot of pieces, that your first um, question or one or initial question in a new space is the size of the widest door to get in, which is going to determine mm. Uh, all kinds of decisions so from there. It's, it's the narrowest door. The nar of course, the narrowest <laughs> door. Yes. Yeah. And even that is determined by the containers that transport the work. Ah. Um, the container door, those steel shipping containers, are 2.7 <laughs> metres high. Right. And 2.3 wide, and you have to take it. I can be really boring on this subject, so right, right, right. it might be better that right. I, I don't go on about it too much, but it's incredibly important because you can have huge doors and a huge lift that brings the work to right. the space, and then the actual corridor through the space can be ah, I see, the, the journey the there. Yeah. So where, how do you start? A project across three rooms, many, many pieces, are they ideas you've had ruminating that, that have come together? How, how does the planning, how do you actually uh, create, how do you start a work like I that? I think it's um, <coughs> something to do with the way of looking around at the space and whether that's looking at it or just sensing it in a way so that the thing I'm always curious about is the adventure of the parts of the space that aren't used that are above head height <coughs> or even the floor space. Mm. I, I think they intrigue me that you can have a space like these galleries here, which are actually quite, um, the proportions are quite strange. It's quite narrow in comparison to its height. Mm. So that was immediately something <coughs> that I wanted to use. And I think it's something to do with putting a space within a space. So opening up the space and closing it down mm. and trying to manipulate the space so there's a new way of exploring it. With, with the three galleries here, I tried to use a kind of figure of eight circumnavigation of the space. So the work would be seen from as many points of view as possible. Mm -hmm. So the sense of vista was very important and usually is quite important, whether that's something I want to close down and overfill in a way, or the, my current obsession is to let the space win in a way, rather than uh, let the objects win. I think I've had a complete somersault of <laughs> changing. But in terms of the perspective you're saying, because in this case, you, there's, you could see from one room to the other, so you have some very particular framing. Mm -hmm. And you've actually done works, I know, where there, there are actually peepholes where you're quite uh, determining in how people are, are going to look at the work, although usually mm -hmm. there's a lot of freedom in that. Do you have a favorite place to look at the work? Is it, or do you, is it really when you install, when you create, it's, it, it has to work everywhere? I think I've always regarded the glamour shot that I think is a kind of curse for sculpture yeah. as the enemy, you know. <laughs> to me, it's the, it, the thing that is still is the object, and the thing that moves is our flesh and blood, and that intrigues me that mm. there's this immediately 
or for me there is that relationship with a with a still space and a moving object around it and maybe if we if we get to discuss venice i can explain a bit more about that but i think that the stillness of sculpture and i'm talking probably talking about the traditional lineage of sculpture um, is activated by the movement of the viewer, hmm. the audience. Do, do. And so there isn't, for me, I think all the awkward ways of looking at it fascinate me. Do, do people sometimes interact in ways that surprise you or, or, or move around the space in ways that you hadn't anticipated? Or is it pretty much... I think I do that. Yeah, I mean, I think if we... I know I've used this ex example before in things I've written about, but if, if I say Rodin's kiss, and I just wonder what comes into everybody's mind, because there is a sort of particular view of it, which is the optimum view of the sort of twisting bodies. But if you crouch down, <laughs> mm. and if you go to one side of it, it's just this extraordinary stacking up of forms that don't actually make complete sense. Hmm. And yet I think that's one of the most beautiful views of that work. Um, it's sort of, a, it's not the one where the hand comes round, it's the opposite side. I but see. you very rarely get an image of that oh. view. So hmm. I, I find these, other views really intriguing, mm -hmm. being able to look under things, through things, or up. And you're, you were saying before, I mean, it seems to me that the floor and the space is what interests you. The walls are, <laughs> happen to be there? How, I mean, because I know you were a painter, so one would, might imagine that the walls would be hugely important, but actually it's really the floor and what yes, comes Yes, I mean, it, I've I got think? a slightly odd, I don't know, slightly sort of fantasy thing about walls, that they are authority. They define institutions. Whereas, I know this can be argued with, so please feel free to do so, but the floor still seems to me to be a, a sort of anarchic space where things can interrupt and prevent or open up and close, where a wall somehow is where it, it has respectability about it. Things can behave on walls in the right, in the appropriate way for the institution. So oh. I like that sense that the open ground and the space between the ground and the ceiling is a potential for disruption in a way. Right. And I suppose that sounds aggressive, but I don't... Or, or spillage, or extending exactly. into places. Yes, yeah. Where, right. Mm. I, I, for fun, I made a, a list of the ways things sort of are built in your work. Um, they, they build from armatures, and they don't. Sometimes they just compress, they stack, they prop, they twist, they drape, they insert. There's the wonderful piece here, um, if you haven't seen, where the, where the, 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 these, the, the 
armature, it starts out at legs and then it becomes a kind of decorate, a kind of a protrusion on a table. So they change their relationship to the world. Um, they sandwich, they pour, they wrap, they cluster, they drape, they pile, they cram, um, they cushion, they squeeze. Uh, the way things attach to the world, and particularly the floor, I guess. Well, the Dutch to the world, that's hugely significant mm. to you. I, I think I, over, over the years, as the sort of ambition for the work has grown. I've been very lucky to have been able to explore those ambitions. And that has meant going out of my comfort zone in terms of some technical aspects of the work. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe having to learn on the hoof, so to speak, about how things stand up, um, how to use precariousness, but also in a way to use it so things don't fall over. In the studio, things often fall over and it's part of the experimental <laughs> process, but obviously that can't happen in the public sphere. So there's, there's this still ongoing relationship is what is an armature? You know, what is the base of the work? Mm -hmm. Is the base just a plinth? Or as with the canvas pieces in the show, which are, you know, there's a lightness maybe about the fabric as well as also a sense of weight about them. Mm. But the weight is phenomenal and it needs these enormous... You mean the, the, the fabric is yes, very heavy? Yes, yes. I mean, we, to get that right, we had to make several attempts at the size of the concrete bases. They, oh, really? I think there was about 50 kilos of cement in each one of those oh. round but, thing. And that, that was just, that sort of thing intrigues me. And how to make that very exposed as part of the language of the work. So balance, weight, mm. <clears throat> the illusion of it sometimes, and sometimes it's very, very apparent. There's a lot of lying, yes. Is there? Yes. <laughs> so it seems like it's going to... Yes, but um, and this is something, again, that maybe I criticise about my own work. I hate hiding the armatures. I think they're such extraordinary things, but I've had to investigate armatures more and more with the kind of ambition to make the work have this, this height and the height to be, in a way, very activated by the viewer experience. So there's a sense of theatre there. And awe, um, I mean, are you that kind of awe and height? I mean, is that of yes, interest to you? Yes, I think, but it's, it's interesting for me the difference between scale and size. To me, scale is illusionary, you know, it's, it, if you put a pin beside the glass, you know, you've got immediately this sense of hugeness and tininess, you know. Right, <laughs> right, right, doesn't so take much. So it's, it's the unreal side. The real side is the actual dimensions of the things, you know. In terms of the real side, you, is the first time you see the work in the gallery, are you able to set it up in your studio? Do you use maquettes? Yes, How does I it use maquettes. And then um, maybe I've just got a slight thing about that word maquette. They're, okay, they're small works okay. that are often the clue to what 
the bigger ones should be. And we, we, when I say we, I do work with assistants in the studio. I don't make the work on that scale by myself. I make all the smaller works myself. Right. But I know the whole idea of having assistants raises lots of moral issues in a way. It's a job, the, it's all right. No? Sorry? <laughs> I think it's all right. It's a good job to have. I'm sure there I think when you're using modeled surfaces like I am, and with small works, that's very possible to do. But transferring that to assistants and instructing them about the kind of model surface I want, is that there's a slippage there that hmm. I still can't quite get my... That it's not entirely yours. Exactly, yes. Oh. It's, it's handing something over, and the way it's handed over has to be extremely clear because it's at that moment that it isn't making art. It's almost saying the way you'll be doing this is like cleaning a window um, or fixing a hole in the road. It's ah, not so about... So instruction becomes important. How yes, do you determine that? Yes, and also standing by to make sure that those instructions are kept. Yes, <laughs> right. But, and there's also structural engineers. I mean, I imagine there's quite a, you know, quite a team uh, yes. behind. Are there any well, compromises in those uh, transitions? I think there's, what, what we do in the studio is so tested out that often it's a shock that a structural engineer for, you know, good reasons will say, no, it needs more cross pieces or you need to put another bar across and that's always difficult but um, heartbreaking yes <laughs> now wrong <laughs> right, right but it it has to be done this work that's on here which is like um an earlier version of right one i mean that's very freely built and because it was in a private gallery it escaped the structural engineer, <laughs> but oh, I yeah. imagine, that, you know, I mean, <laughs> this is away. an interesting thing about private and public spaces as well. That's, uh, uh, I, right, so you have more freedom in a way in the private spaces to an extent? Yeah, dare I say it, yes, right. yeah, okay. I, think, I think there is, you know. Um, and but, the, I'm interested in the, so the conversation between the different pieces, are they ideas you had in mind that you bring together or you always thought of them as 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 part of a single room a single family how do, how do those i think separate? they do if, if something is empty i then start thinking i mean i think my thinking is incredibly crass and <laughs> banal you know i then start Got thinking it. of fullness or if something is very open i think of things that block I like that, that relationship between works as you, as mm. you walk through the space, yeah. you know, it's not... Yeah. I mean, I've often said that I... I don't have ideas, and I think there is a sort of maybe a division between artists who have do have very clear ideas and they can work out 
the narrative, those ideas. I think I make work in order to find an idea. <laughs> but, and I mean, do you work with the materials? I mean, what is yes. the starting point there? Yes, yeah, and work with those very, if it's for an exhibition, because of course a lot of work gets made that isn't for an exhibition. Mm -hmm. And that's where I become very aware of that maybe a starting point is more about an action or a gesture or what the material, what I'm attracted to materially on that particular day. Yeah. Do you have an example of a particular material that you manipulated in a particular way? At so the moment, with... I'm using a lot of plaster. All right. And it's very comforting because it was a material I used very early on in the 60s, you know, when I first got into sculpture. And we're casting. Yes, casting yeah. it, but I'm modelling it directly. And just the freedom of it is... I mean, the freedom is just extraordinary. You know, the relationship, the immediate relationship. I mean, it has a sort of painterly quality about mm. it. I mean, in a way, the results are happening. How are you working with it? In slabs? Or in how are you actually...? I'm putting it onto itself. So right. I'm just trying to build up these things that are uh, completely, the material is integral to the whole huh. object. So no, no armature? No there? armature in right. these ones. There. And do they ever? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fall over? They do. They, they get top heavy and that sort of intrigues me at what point that is. And then the breaking up of them intrigues me. And I like the fragility of plaster, but also its solidity and weight. Hmm. But these History, are quite small perhaps. objects, so they can play around with that very easily. Translating that to something that's five meters high becomes a very different. Does that, <laughs> does that sometimes entail changing the materials? Do you have, is there some yes, big it, changes? it will, but it, what always, the biggest thing I want to really explore at the moment is is exposing the armature so that relationship with weight and uh, the material how the material behaves is very exposed in relationship to the thing that it's working with which is the armature because there was there was a period that you were at the beginning of your work that you were very keen not to use an armature, right? That, that yes. materials were able to kind of stand up on their own. Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. And that was like the this one. This one. Which and side? That, <laughs> that side. Yeah. Um, for fun, I I made a list of your materials over the years. Uh, I can't read them all. There's too many. But timber, plywood, wadding, polyurethane, fiberglass, paper, clay, formica, upright piano, television set, blanket, curtain, dust screws, topsoil, tape, sacks, sugar, steel frame, cord, rubber, uh, cabling, resin, that's about a third of the list. Mm -hmm. um, do you, I mean, do you, do, you, do you go to hardware stores and go crazy? How do you find <laughs> your materials? What are your, what are your sources and how do you I think start that way? See, for me, they're incredibly traditional sculpture materials. Yeah. You know, they're out of clay. Mm. Clay was the material sure. of choice because 
um, I was hopeless at all the technical things I was expecting. Or if you went and joined a sculpture department, you learned sculpture. You learned about casting. You learned stone, stone carving, which was just like, that was just... Not for you. And yeah. welding. I think I've tried to do welding, learned it five times, and I just <laughs> can't get to grips. It's so, okay. It's okay. <laughs> Tim, you know, carving in wood, constructing in wood, and then there was clay, and that was like magic. And Elizabeth Frink and an artist called Robert Clapworthy taught the clay modeling class at Chelsea School of Art, and they said, don't use your hands, go and find an, something to hit the clay with and cut it with, whether it's a piece of wood or go to the canteen and get a knife and fork, but don't, don't finger it. And it was just, it was, these things are like epiphanies, you know, that there's something anarchic about rebelling against what I might have thought was a sort of, incredible skill that relied totally on your fingertip skills and oh. here were two artists saying no try something different it was, right. was a very uh, sort of revealing right. just as casting was you know where the mould holds the form then you re remove it yeah. and it's like a magical act and then <laughs> the object returns in a completely different way, you know, cast in plaster or whatever it might be. So it's that these kind of magical things that weren't about the image, they were about the process and of doing something. I think that was what was so attractive and in a way sort of, yes, it needed skills were required, but it also needed the confidence to perhaps rebel against skills mm. in some way. Right. And that suited my temperament at the mm. time. So in addition to the, the many, many materials that are very easy to see, there's many, many tools, I guess, that, there's, that are part of the making that are somehow uh, are less apparent in the finished work. Um, the, the assistants use a lot of I have, I'm very lucky to have my main assistant who is a welder, so we can work on the structural sides of the works in situ, and that's, it doesn't go away to a fabricator, it stays and the alterations can be made right. in place, and they all use a lot of tools. I, in, with my smaller works, use bare minimum of tools. Actually. Oh really, you have your set, you yes, what you'd like to use. It, it really is sort of mainly hands and just tools that cut, um, but that's how I like it as well. Right. <laughs> um, one thing that's very apparent is the um, very beautiful in your work is the emphasis on how you where things come together and materials come together. Yes. There's yes. a lot of attention to things are tied or nailed or, or painted, mm -hmm. and a lot of um, the connections are made. Uh, very, there are things that there's seams, there's joins, sometimes there's clay and bits of paint. Uh, that, that, the, the sense of it being made, the emphasis on where things are being joined together rather than 
somehow mm. organically. That that's of course of great interest to you. That that's. I think the, the the. I mean, even looking at say, Benini Santa Teresa, mm -hmm. I think just looking at how sculpture is made, that the point where one surface hits another surface, where the forms part company, mm. start going in different directions, is where the energy of the work is. So to me, where, and maybe that was something that was ingrained in me very early on, you know, was to look at how sculptors made a curve meet another curve, you know, what mm. th that curve wasn't fudged in some way. There was a precision there right. about it. Right. And I think that I found that fascinating. And therefore, for me, where things meet mm. is always a sort of crucial point. And I like also maybe combining different materials at that point. Right. So perhaps cement is combined with fabric to maybe emphasize where these joins are, right. where things intersect. Because the other contrast is between things that look quite finished and polished and things mm. that look really rough and, and, and unfinished. And mm. those things come together in very interesting ways. Too. I suddenly can't think of anything uh, that's the, finished. The, or the, 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 the Tate, oh, yeah. there were those beautifully rounded uh, pieces that then would, would were, were whacked into the jumble oh, right. and stuff, yes, and that, that yes. those were quite yes. yeah. that um, or even or even here the the, the torpolin seems so the, yes. the fabrics are finished I mean, on on, yes. on armatures that mm. you can't even really see mm. well you can't see mm. is that do you like that contrast as well yes, between yes. the textures um, again I think it's something to do with with the sort of tempo of, of how something is made. The canvas, the painting of the canvas was obviously quite quick. Um, I was painting them with brooms oh, really? dipped in just ordinary household paint. Oh. So they, they were, it was a quick process. But the actual, yes, I think the, the lack of touch and fuss on the surface of those was very important, in, as is the main lintel piece in this work. Right. It's quite, in a way, quite untouched right. compared with maybe the plaster works mm -hmm. and some of the binding of the plaster works in the end room. Mm. Yes, I, I think, to me, I see those as quite time-based, you know, mm -hmm. that there's a, there's a quick work that has a sort of sim simplicity about it in terms of making, and then there's works that are incredibly labour-intensive, mm -hmm. um, of which there was a lot in Venice, actually, oh, really? of that kind, yes. Is there, do things change in the space? I mean, is it, to what extent the making, the final making is always in the space? Do things, yes, yes. decisions are made at that point as well? Or? Uh, it keep, yes, yeah. it, it changes up till the last minute. Right. But um, with these very tall works, I have to do quite a lot of forward planning because they cannot, once they're up, like the lintel, it can't be moved. Right. <laughs> so right. It's just 
it's just too difficult to do. Um, you were saying how um, the works after they hit their, their afterlife, they, there's, there, there's a lot of storage, and then actually pieces of wood, plywood get reused, oh, right? Yeah. They, yeah. There's a kind of, they, mm. they, they live on in other works. Yes. Could you give and us an example? The current work, all the works, the three works that have the big blocks on them, the structures that hold that up, it all come from the Tate work. Oh, really? And there's still a lot of the marks on it from where we had had to assemble those. Right. So I quite like this history of the work that comes in, where the marks seem kind of meaningful, but they're actually <laughs> just the leftovers right. of right. other things that have happened. To them. And polishing, finishing, that's not your... You, you like things to have a sense of being sort of definitively unfinished or having a pattern of time? Yes, I'm, I suppose, again, going back to the smaller works and sort of medium-sized work, not knowing when something is finished is something I've become fascinated by and sort of want to use, and use in a way that mm. maybe there's a point where the work gets overfinished and it has to be dismantled oh, again really? in take order it to back. yes yeah to keep something of its energy alive there and not knowing where that point is or missing that point i think it's sort of like looking at a de kooning or a jackson pollock and saying well where is the last mark that they how did you made? know it was, how did you know it was done <laughs> yes <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly, yes, and uh, right. intrigued by that thing where the gesture seems to have happened all in one go in some way that I think gives this extraordinary sense of syntax to right. work, you know, whether something has the quality of being in the present tense or the past tense or even the future tense. Right, and so it's still kind of unfolding as we're looking at yes, it somehow. Yes, absolutely, right. yeah. Wonderful. Or even a tension, like um, thinking of Bruce Nauman's, you know, the chairs that are suspended. Mm. Uh, yes. To me, they're, they, they stand in the future tense because we don't, there's that great <laughs> sense of anticipation about those <laughs> they're, works. They're going to drop. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. And even the, the things, the objects and images that you take as inspiration, um, broken chairs, building sites, uh, hoardings, uh, bollards, barriers, containers, you're interested in things that are, that, that are in between, perhaps, would you say? Yes, I, I think I'm sort of intrigued by what we as human beings leave behind in the world. Mm -hmm. And in a way, a kind of anthropological sort of presence of objects, you know, the mm. street furniture. And are they abandoned? Are they <laughs> finished with or are they in use? There's, there's an ambiguity of the urban environment, just as I think there is in the rural environment, mm -hmm. you know, that you might suddenly find in a stretch of countryside a sort of cast, poured cement area that's obviously where 
Tractors Park or something. Right. But there's there's mm -hmm. a sort of ambiguity for a moment about whether things are coming into the world or going out of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes me intrigued by where the notion where the finish is. Do you have permanent works? There must be there. Are, do you have permanent commissions out in the world? Um, I've had two. Actually. Two. And yeah. is that does that fit? Does that a fit with with your work? Do you like working that way? They were the one on the High Line was ah, right. sort of in, intriguing in a way, you know, because it's oh god, this is difficult. Um, it's so manicured and. <laughs> sure. Yes. Landscaped and Trying kind of carefully plotted. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I just you know, and so narrow. So it, it it seemed there was sort of no room there for a commission. This all sounds incredibly huh. insulting, for which I no, apologise. No. But then there was this spur going off the High Line that was that was not part of the public thoroughfare and that was the space I was given so it was very very interesting to be able to use that space and sort of test out this street a kind of street object that right. could contain those kind of ambiguities as right. whether it was it was an intended thing with a use or or an utterly useless thing you know that it could be ambiguous in that way but works works that have a single preferred view mm. have you that's not that's not very i guess that one did it that was one very did. frontal yes oh. and side and sideways so you had to work quite differently i guess that's yes it was uh, but not most of the work i don't think of them as having a single view no no right and what about your background as a painter Right, because we see in the drawings they're much more colourful. They're, they're, it's different, and of course mm. there is a frontal view when yes. you use the walls. Yeah. It's a really different. Mm. Um, when do you do you ever miss them? When did you when did you say no? I'm 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 really a sculptor, and you still paint, of course, on on yes. sculptural works. Yeah. What is that? I think it was you? working with clay. I mean, it was. 1961, to give it a date, you know, when I realised that not working with an image that got trapped in in a rectangle was was just so liberating and just as an, a, a sort of visceral experience where that immediate contact with a material, clay, mm could in a way escape a kind of judgment about right or wrong. Of course, of course that happens, but there seemed to be an enormous expansion into all sorts of other worlds that escaped that kind of judgment. There were other things to take into consideration um, right. that I, I was intrigued by. Uh -huh. But you still draw? You still that's part you still draw a lot, no? Oh that's draw, cool. yes. Yeah. Right. I mean I regard the the coloured yes. works as drawings, you know. Right. Yes. And I do those the whole time. Yeah. yeah. 
as for ideas, for, for forms, for sculptural works? Yes, and sometimes they're, they're just things that emerge on the paper through almost like scribbling. It's right. the only way I can describe oh. it. Yeah. But the ones that are done here, that are shown here, are very, almost very specifically about possible works and trying in a way to work out what those are. Oh. And yes, they are done from a single point of view, which is very contrary to what I want the work to eventually right. become. Right, yeah. right. Okay. So maybe it's a bit... It's, it's sort of conflicted, that. <laughs> I was interested in some yeah. early work you did where you had experimenting with making works in the dark and just the touch pieces. That kind of experimentation is still vital to... Very, to... yeah. Mm. I mean, the working in... Oh, this is... Yes, yeah. we can talk about that. <laughs> yes, the... The, um, the working in the dark was very specific to... Um, having children and finding, not finding, not being able to find time during the day to make work sure. and sort of losing that confidence of thinking of oneself as an artist and right. then trying to find a, a different way of being an artist, which was to work late at night. And right. because I was very unsure about what I wanted to make. I turned off all the lights in the studio and just assembled materials oh, really? and worked in, worked in the dark with very little visible, with, with the materials and the object that emerged being not very visible. Oh. And often using just my arm or even my foot as a kind of object to make the work around, yes, oh, so. So not, not a lot of materials, not a lot of space required, <laughs> really. Yeah. So, but you never stopped making work. No, then. no, right. it was just difficult, as, as we all know, those times when family, yeah. yeah. I can't believe it, I mean, my children are all in their 40s and just talking to parents today, the problems are still the oh, same. Yeah, we haven't cracked so that what, one. what's happened? You yeah, know? Yeah, Why no. isn't it it's very difficult. easier? No. You know, I, I find it shocking. Yeah. You know. And anyway, that's my <laughs> political statement. <laughs> it's true, we haven't yes. cracked it. Um, but you but you persisted obviously. You never you always were an artist, but you you've been able to work more, needless to say, in the past 20 years? 20, oh, yes, years? yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. And what about, I, I have to ask, since you've, you've, you've... So, having been in, in London for all these years, and obviously it's, it's a completely different art world, art scene, what, I mean, from your perspective, what, what's, what's changed? Or maybe even what's gotten better for you? I mean, more opportunities? Are you... Is it... Mm. I think... Um, when, when I left art school in 1966, the, the one ambition was to get a studio, and that seemed to me, naively or whatever, what would define me as an artist would be actually 
producing the work. It wasn't, I didn't have ambitions to exhibit. That seemed to be something years ahead, you know, and it just seemed really vital to establish that working routine. And you would and show it to peers, other artists? Yes, yes, and also I was, it was at a time when there was a lot of art school teaching available. So I left in 66, and that same year, I got a job at West of England College of Art, Bristol School of Art, as right. it was then called, and at Chelsea. And there was this sense that art schools at that time, teaching was a form of patronage. You didn't, like now, you're, you have to prove your worth as an academic in art schools through all these um, research assessment exercises and everything. But I think for a brief time, and I think it was a very brief time, I think art schools were bubbling with a lot of younger tutors who were just very delighted to have that money coming in that, that supported their... The studio work. Studio, yes. Right. So it was... But that has... That has gone, I think, com completely. It's more yeah. difficult. Yeah. And was it very England-based? I mean, I know Arte Povera was important in your work. Was it, was it, let's say, insular? Was there less of a sense of belonging to a bigger discussion? Was it more I think there you? was, during the 60s, there was a tremendous sense of rumour and, and hearsay. And I wrote an, an essay on that. You know, that the people were going to the States or people were going to the British school at Rome and they were experiencing all sorts of things about art that were going very counter to the, the particular lineage of British art. Mm -hmm. You know, I know there were artists reneging on that, but there was, certainly in sculpture, it's still, for me, entrenched in the 1950s and mm. quite a strict idea about it what was good, what was right, what was wrong. <laughs> and then, you know, Arte Povera and all sorts of other movements, pop art, conceptual art, they came in so rapidly that mm -hmm. it, it just generated this entirely different energy to understanding be, what being an artist could be. And I think that was just so exciting because it fueled that wonderful sense of anarchy, you know, right. that you could... Yes, so I think looking beyond the British Isles was really important, right. or it was for me, although I didn't actually travel that much then. But, of course, uh, a new generation of artists looked to you, not least for your use of uh, recycling materials, reusing materials, that's, there's a kind of antecedent, uh, yeah. you're seen as having that, is that, was that, is that come as a surprise that that particular part of your work has been, has resonated with younger it, artists so much? Yes, I suppose it just was the, again, it was the sort of natural thing to do, you know, was that you took advantage of what was available. You've even um, used domestic rubbish, I know, as one of your, oh, yes. one of your materials is yeah. domestic rubbish. Yes. <laughs> so Every day I took the bag of rubbish into my studio and sealed it up with tape 
<laughs> and then used it in a way like clay and just really? um, and then gradually over time it sort of <laughs> it, it collapsed as the <laughs> as the rubbish inside disintegrated yeah have you so, had have you ever any um, particular failures have any works ever collapsed and in ways that were irreparable or yes was an, in um, uh, we, there is an image of the the not the work that collapsed but there were two there was one of those freak um, hurricanes it was in the the grounds of Gloucester Cathedral so it was a little bit unfortunate yeah. and it um, yeah two of the works just got complete they looked beautiful actually when, when they, they were yeah. destroyed you, know? <laughs> you would so say that hope springs eternal right. <laughs> Did, it, did you let it, you couldn't stay though, I'm yeah, sure. No, I went down there and rebuilt it in oh. another way, which was very satisfying. You know. <laughs> Thank goodness there were, it was an outside exhibition and several artists had the, had the same oh, okay. problem, so it wasn't just bad making, although I think that <laughs> came into God. it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, an inspiration, I'm sure, to everyone here, as with your students. It's been wonderful to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for coming and um, for Philip Barlow. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>